Hey guys, welcome back. A few things before we get started as usual. Uh, our Hopewell Farm 420 sale is over. So if you're looking for uh, some new CBD to try, we still offer 10% off all Hopewell Farm products. And that promo code is in the description below. Uh, and I forgot the promo code, <laughs> but it's in the description. Nice. So uh, go check that out if you want 10% off. It's amazing CBD. If you guys were at the conference, um, they were there as a vendor and uh, they're awesome people. They're, they really put passion into their product and, and, and it's really a great product. And there's some great testimonies of people who've been using it. So check that out if you're interested. The Omnia Radiation Balancer, which is a patch or now they have pendants, but it, it's a patch right, you right put now. on. Aaron's wearing one right now. Yeah. So the patch actually is something you put on a radiating device, phone, computer, Wi-Fi router, and it doesn't block the radiation. It actually balances it. It harmonizes it into uh, something that's, that's proving to be actually beneficial for the body. And uh, so we're not just constantly bombarded by this energy. It changes your field, actually. And the pendant actually does it without the, without the device, and they've been getting some great feedback on that. Um, but uh, we ten uh, percent off all their products with promo code Truth, uh, and that link is below in the description as well. We've also partnered up with our friend Mason Fury, who uh, has begun making these orgone pyramids. His his company is called Merlin's Lab, and we offer twenty uh, percent discount through our link with promo code Solstice. And that is in the description below. Also, these things are amazing. This is the large one. He has three different sizes. Um, some high quality copper. They have the capstone. This one has Lumerian quartz with double wrapped copper. I mean, there's tigers. I, you know, everyone's specific, but uh, they're really awesome. And I recommend uh, if you're looking for some even more EMF protection, because that's what these do, uh, go and check that out. All of our Teespring merchandise is 20% off with promo code 20 and back. All right. Now let's get into today's guest. We are joined by Sue Walker who is a professional clairvoyant and medical intuitive. And some of you guys may know who she is. She's been around. She's been uh, on tons of podcasts, even documentaries at this point. She's in communication with an extraterrestrial star nation known as the Ponte, who manage interstellar information beneath the Sandia Mountain uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, it's quite a, a fascinating story. Uh, I've been following her for a few years now. I've actually had two separate experiences with the Ponte myself where they have showed up in my dream space and uh i was just kind of led to reach out to sue right now and it's and it seems like there's a lot of information to talk about right now these are some interesting times so welcome to the show thank you very much i've been looking forward to this since you contacted me and and just happy to be here um i apologize ahead of time for all of the moving boxes you see behind me this is my first broadcast from my new art studio space and so you see some of my art supplies and easels and works in progress here and i just don't have anything up on the walls yet but i've got still things to organize and put away. I'm waiting on some bookshelves, which is when the boxes are full of. Nice. Right. So um, if you hear a little bit of an echo, by the time we get to the next time round, if we don't get through all the information today, then hopefully you'll see artwork up on the walls next time. But uh, I'm enjoying organizing all of my creative things 
um, in one place finally. And so right. it's nice to do this. It's it's important to have in space have a space to express your creativity right now because that's really important actually um, with our evolution. Yep. So let's just go back. Um, I know you've told your story a million times on a bunch of other shows, but for the people who don't know, can we just give like a bullet point um, timeline sure. of of how this all happened, uh, how you sure. came into communication with them, and then we'll get into some other questions. It shocked the ever-living you-know-what out of me when it first started. Um, I met my spouse, Reverend White Otter, in Iowa, and that's where I lived uh, in 2012 when we met. I wanted to, when we were dating, come see where he lived, and he lived um, a 12-hour drive away in the Albuquerque, New Mexico area, and I had never been to New Mexico. All I knew it as was the land of Roswell and uh, things like Sandia National Labs and Los Alamos, all those secret military mm. kinds of things. Other than that, I thought this state was flat and full of desert scrub and that was it. And I was very, very wrong because when I got here, I found out that Albuquerque sits in a river valley, the Rio Grande River Valley on the edge of a mountain range called the Sandia Mountains. I had planned on staying with Otter several weeks and was here close to 10 days. And it was real close to the fall equinox of 2013. And we happened to be watching TV one night and I heard a strange male voice in my head. Now, at that point in time, I'd been a professional clairvoyant and medical intuitive for more than two and a half decades. And so I've done my share of ghost busting and channeling and uh, research into the paranormal of all kinds of things and investigated things. I've worked for three letter agencies. I've done murder cases and missing personal cases. And if it was strange and unusual, either I had done it or Otter had, because he'd been researching the paranormal for 35 years at that point in time. When I heard this strange male voice in my head, several things um, came to me. First of all, this voice was not in the room with me. That was the first unusual thing. And that was a abnormal. Um, normally, if you go into a haunted place, the ghost is there. If you listen to a disembodied spiritual advisor or voice or channel someone, usually the presence is local. But this strange, new, clear as a bell, male voice in my head was coming from beneath the Sandia Mountain. And there was a single spot that I could point to on the mountain where this voice seemed to originate from. It came very specifically with a distance and a directional sense. And you have to keep in mind from this home, the Sandia Mountain is 10 miles away. And I thought, what is this? And it said something very briefly and was gone. And I thought, well, oh, that was a strange anomaly. I wonder what that was. The next day I heard the voice again, same guy, calm, mature, intelligent, and clearly male. And I thought, 
what is going on here? By the time I'd heard it a third time, I figured I'd better ask God or if he'd ever heard it. Because again, his extensive background into paranormal research. And when I turned to Otter and I said, Otter, you ever uh, hear a voice coming from the mountain? I keep hearing this guy. And he went, oh, them. Oh, I've been hearing them ever since I moved in here in 2009. They talk all the time. They talk so much I have to tune them out. Why? So I explained <laughs> to him that I'd started hearing this male voice. And I knew that there was something different. Normally when I pick up on somebody else, because I've got this background of clear, distinct images in my head, I thought, I'm not sure this guy is from here. But at the same time, I was going to go back to Iowa. And when I did that, I didn't hear the voice as I was in Iowa. I came back down in 2013 for the Thanksgiving holiday. And the moment I walked into this house, the voice started back up again. Well, because it came from the Sandia Mountain, I nicknamed it. I decided that calling it the voice from the mountain sounded a little dumb. And so I just nicknamed it Sandia. Sounded like Sandy, like a person's name. And I'd completely forgotten at the time that the word Sandia in Spanish means watermelon. And when I nicknamed the voice Sandia, I told, turned to Otter and I said, I'm gonna give this voice a nickname and I think I'll call it Sandia. The voice was listening and as soon as I said, I'm going to nickname it Sandia, he piped up. He went, Sandia, eh? Watermelon head. That'll work. And I thought, <laughs> who is this and what do they mean? And so it wasn't until I'd come back Thanksgiving that I finally got brave enough to ask Sandia what his real name was and where home was. And as soon as I asked, he answered and he answered in detail. And he said, my real name is Dilkum. And I said, what? He said, Dilkum. And I said, can you do that slower? Dilkum. And I said, Dilkum. And he spelled it immediately and he spelled it T-L-K-M. And he followed that up with our language seldom uses vowels unless they are borrowed. And I said, so Tilcom, where's home? He said, home is the fifth planet orbiting the further of the two stars of the binary system that you call Zeta Reticuli in the constellation of Reticulum, which is a Southern hemisphere constellation, difficult to see from here. <laughs> okay. He said, nice. our planet is called Pandel. And he spelled it P apostrophe N-T-L. And he said the apostrophe was what they considered a lip flap. I said, what's a lip flap? He said, that's a lip flap. So Pantel. I said, Pantel. He said, we are the Ponty. I said, you're the Ponty from Pantel. And he indicated that that was correct. That began... Otter and I's journey of learning about Sandia or Tilcom and 
what life was like for him and why he was here. And it wasn't for, gosh, probably a year and a half after talk, beginning talking with Dilkum, that he finally introduced us to others that he worked with beneath the Sandia Mountain. We knew he wasn't alone, but we kind of waited for him to bring it up and speak about things. And so he introduced us to a female and another young male. And the female's name was Jeruti. And if you want to know how to pronounce it, say the girl's name, Trudy, just start it with a J, Trudy. And then the young man he introduced us to was Rahaz. And Rahaz's real nickname, we call him Radar. And he was a pilot. And so we got introduced to these other two and started just chatting with them long distance, like neighbors across the backyard fence, learning more and more with each conversation about who they were, what life was like for them, why they were here, what their culture was like, what their humor was like, which we didn't expect. And so we began to amass a great deal of information about the Ponte. In May of 2015, Tilcom piped up one day and he said, Sue, we understand that your world has something called social media. And I went, uh-oh, yeah. Mm. He said, would it be permitted for us to have an account we wish to teach? And so that started um, the Facebook and Twitter accounts. And all we did in the, for the first almost two years was translate for Tilcom, Radar, and Trudy as much as we could, word for word. And Otter and I were behind the scenes, but we're not in on the conversations because we wanted the interaction to not focus on us, but to focus so that the Twitter followers or the Facebook people could interact and get to know these three individuals from Pontel as much as they could like Otter and I had. So that's kind of how it got started. And And, uh, that was, let's see, 15, that would have been seven years ago now, 88 some thousand tweets. (laughs) And yeah, I've been, I found, it was, I don't remember when I started following that Twitter account. Uh, whenever I first found out about you. And I quickly realized that that was actually where a lot of the controversy was around your testimony, because people had a hard time grasping the fact that this was actually happening, that that an ET race would actually work through somebody on a social media. Yes. And, and it's kind of sounds ridiculous. But when they hear that, if they would even give a chance, give the backstory a chance, first of all, and the ETs run the planet, you know, our, our government is ran by ETs, whatever. So I'm like, it does. It doesn't surprise me at all that an ET group would be on social media. There's probably tons of ETs on social media that we have no idea about. More than um, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is just one account where we're getting public, we're made publicly aware that this is actually the case, and that's hard for people to grasp. So I think it's just helpful whenever you share that backstory, so people understand that. 
Um, so have they indicated how long they've been here on earth? Hmm. Long time, way before white man ever set foot on the North American continent. Um, and we found out from one of our Zuni elder friends who passed at the beginning of this year, Clifford Mahuti. Mahuti. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We was, um, has been on Ancient Aliens and has um, a, a great many interviews out there and kind of hung around in the outskirts of the UFO conferences and circles for mm -hmm. 20, 25, 30 years before we met him. And Clifford told us that in Zuni history, um, the ant people and the spider people, actually after the last flood event, gathered people up at the mouth of the Colorado River, where it meets Baja, California. And these Star Nation people took the survivors, walked them all as a group up the Colorado to where the Little Colorado meets, up the Little Colorado, and then branched off from there, um, following what used to be a stream um, or a river that is dried up now that brought them to what is now the new, the Zuni reservation in uh, at the New Mexico, Arizona border. When they arrived, their housing was already set up for them. The Star Nation people had done that. Because of that positive interaction with Star Nation people, whenever there were other ships sighted or landings in New Mexico, the Zuni people um, welcomed the Star Nation people because they'd rescued them. And the Zuni also talk about the ant people and the spider people um, taking them underground when it was too dangerous to live on the surface, feeding them, housing them, taking care of them underground until it was safe to come back. And so they have this interaction. And, and in fact, um, uh, we didn't know that the Zuni already knew that Star Nation peoples, plural, came and visited them from the Sandia Mountain on, a, on a, at least a yearly basis. And they talk about two Star Nations always coming together when uh, they left the mountain and visited the Zuni and then returned. So the local Pueblo peoples, and there are a number of tribes here, all knew that the Star Nation folks lived under the Sandia. We didn't know until Clifford let us know. So his stories to us uh, and his translation of ancient Zuni um, helped us understand that a lot of the things that Tilcom had informed us about were in fact real. Uh, Tilcom let us know that this facility under the Sandia Mountain is considered an information station for interstellar travelers coming to the planet. So if, mm -hmm. if you can picture going from one state to another in the United States, when you cross into a new state, usually there's a visitor and information center. It's like that. 
You can come, you can ask questions, you can get the local news, you can get the local technology, you can learn uh, who is friendly, who is not, um, are they gonna be shot at, where are their people located, what's good to eat here, yada, yada. And so the information station provided that kind of information for interstellar travelers for thousands of years. They tell us that their facility was retrofitted into the ancient tunnel system that already existed, was partially collapsed in some locations, but it, the, on the eastern side of the Rockies, there's a main line that has a lot of feeder branches off of it that go east-west. And this facility, lies on that main north-south line. Used to be an underground system where you could go from south, uh, at least Central America, all the way up to the Arctic. Mm. Wow. Underground. So oh. that's all fascinating. And I was going to ask, you're answering a lot of my questions before I even asked them, which is great. Uh, but my concern, my question is, why would they disclose their precise location? Would that not be like, would that not concern them for security purposes or does that not matter? Um, all right, so what they told us, and I, I was concerned about that and whether or not other earth humans or military could find them in this tunnel system. And what they told us was that if you go south of the Sandia mountain to the very next mountain range, five, 10 miles south, um, you get into the Manzano mountains and Kirtland Air Force Base and the Sandia National Labs, which built their laboratory in that section of the tunnel system. There was a collapse uh, right about Interstate 40 uh, there's a break between the Sandia Mountains and the Manzana Mountains, and there had been a collapse of the tunnel system in that area. The Ponte told us that the facility has thousands of miles of tunnels in New Mexico uh, that branch off all kinds of places, but there are many levels um, and that their facility was two miles deep. I don't know how deep the military excavated to retrofit the tunnel system? That I don't know. Um, the Ponte didn't seem terribly concerned um, about the military finding them or hurting them. Um, however, we have some indications that there may be interaction here in New Mexico at this facility with some earth humans, what their status is, whether they're military, we're not sure. But what stories come to us, um, and we've talked to a number of service people in this area of Albuquerque and some of the service people, and we talked to an electrician who signed up for a government contract job was told to meet a van out in the desert. When he arrived at the location he was given, he was told to leave his tools. He wouldn't need them. 
He had to give up everything in his pockets, including his phone, his lighter. And they drove him around in this van for an hour plus until they entered into an area that when he got out of the van, it was the largest airstrip he'd ever seen, except it was underground. And wow. the vaulted ceilings over this facility were very, very high. He could not even estimate how high they were. My guess is three, 400 feet. I don't know that, but just given the images that I've been given, that'd be pretty close. This electrician did see not only craft in, in, in this hangar bay area, but also earth human looking folks that look like us walking around with short little gray guys. Mm. Wow. Wow. Which doesn't surprise me at all. And yeah, I mean that we've heard on numerous occasions, you know, the humans have been working with the ETs. And uh, mm. so it, it appears like, I, I wonder, do you have any concept of the population of the Ponte? Like how many of them are here? And are they only located in Sandia? Yeah, no, they are not only located here. This is just the information station for the Northern and Western hemispheres. That's the story on land that this information station covers. If uh, what, what, when we asked Sandia if they were the only ones, first of all, he said, there are four land-based information stations and there are four aquatic information stations, but that's not all the Ponte on the planet or on the moon, that there are small pockets of researchers in other areas as well. They just aren't an information station. And so we got coordinates and descriptions of the other aquatic and land-based information stations from Tilcom. And we've got land-based one in Myanmar, um, North Central Burma area. Uh, we have, there's one in Pakistan in the North Eastern section in the mountains. Um, we know that the aquatic stations, there's one down off of Tasmania in the Tasman Sea. There's one North of Scotland um, that they, it, they call the North Sea Aquatic Station. There's one north of Madagascar out in the Seychelles, um, a group of islands off the eastern coast of Af Central Africa. And he indicated that there was another huge tunnel system that went from underwater into the middle of the African continent just like there's one here that goes from San California, Southern California, and is an underground tunnel system that you could bring a submarine all the way to the Arizona, New Mexico border. Yep. We've heard that from that's a few how far people. it goes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a big, California is like a big shelf. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's why there's so many, I mean, you can even get on Google earth and see the anomalies underwater just off the you coast. Sure can. And then there's, and there's even been people who have pinpointed like, this is the inlet. This is the shelf. This mm -hmm. is where the, the submarine. Mm -hmm. The go. entrance to that mm -hmm. is huge. Right. Uh, half a mile plus wide. 
San San Marino. Boy, I'd have to get the map. Right. I could show you where it is. There, but, yeah, but um, there's there's God. anomalies on the sea floor there that are clearly yes. bases. Yes. Clearly. Very, I mean, very certainly. You can see a lot of anomalies along the coastline edges on every continent when the ocean was lower and where uh, things all joined together. In fact, if you look at the sea floor just of the Pacific, you've got lines underneath the Pacific that clearly meet at junction points. Right. And it's, a, it's, it's an not a geographic anomaly. <laughs> Right. There's an entire tunnel system. There's an ancient tunnel system, then there's a more recent one, and there are different right. depths. Um, our recent uh, whistleblower that we've had on the show, uh, he claims to be on a team that traverses these tunnels and is part of the team that's clearing them out. Um, and he has a lot of information about that. And he says that the inner earth beings um, actually help these teams um, navigate these tunnels. Uh, uh, and it's very interesting how Matt, like this planet is nothing what we think it is, you know. No, no. Yeah. Um, we learned from Clifford that the Zuni were given specific areas of the desert southwest that if they walked to these areas and said certain prayers on certain days and brought certain gifts, that they would receive information back and forth and gifts from the star nation that was underground in that area. And there's more than a dozen locations. I counted about 40 in Arizona and New Mexico thus far. I asked Clifford, what kind of gifts did you get with the Star Nation folks? And he said, well, we used to exchange seeds with them. We used to give them seeds and we used to get back seeds of things to grow as uh, food sources and other goods, textiles, or whatever. And I uh, thought that was fascinating. And I, quietly, I, I wondered if that included animal seeds, our seeds. Yeah. And I never got a chance to ask Clifford that before he passed. Wow, this is wow. It's all very fascinating. And even Africa, like that's where there's, there's the most evidence wow. there of these ancient tunnel systems where they were, you know, even on ancient aliens, they, they claimed these tunnels were mined for for mining gold they were created for mm -hmm. mining gold uh, some the, of them were yes right but but either way it's there's literal evidence of it you know it's not even a theory anymore especially in africa these they don't they, they look like they were bored out by some sort of advanced technology yes, um, yes. They, they go extremely deep um and there's no explanation for them publicly anyway i mean they, they, no they, way that we now could technologically manufacture something of the size that we're yeah. seeing yeah right. it's beyond our technology at this stage right and i've been seeing a lot of information that lately too in videos are just it's funny how this information hits the collective sometimes about africa being far larger than we were ever taught like it, it's so much bigger than it even than, than we're taught and there's so yes. much more going on there like it's insane and and a lot of the other continents and countries are, are even way smaller than they're depicted on the map. Like Greenland, for instance, is like, it's like four times smaller than the size it's actually depicted. And it's mm -hmm. really interesting, like how they're trying to throw us off with just the geography of the planet. Uh, uh, you know, it would be really interesting to get an actual map one day and see what the hell it yeah, looks like. Yeah, I agree with that. 
So have they ever, do you know, do you have any indication on what type of craft that they fly? Are they discs? Oh, yes. They, I, I, that was one thing that we had a discussion about. And keep in mind, we never grilled Tilcom nor any of the Ponte about their technology. We did not want to give them the impression that their technology was more important than they were as people. And we That's were, beautiful. we had this golden opportunity to talk to somebody more than once and get information about them as a cult and get them to describe everything from how do you celebrate birthdays to what do you do on your holidays? Why are they special? What do you believe in? And all of those kinds of everyday questions. But we also had them spontaneously um, comment on things especially if the Twitter followers brought up a question. So if somebody um, asked them what their ships were like, they answered and they answered in detail, like most things. Um, uh, the Ponte craft can be oval, uh, saucer-shaped, or cylinder-shaped. The cylinders tend to be extremely large and are designed for going into the ocean. Um, none of the craft have seams, rivets, doodads on the outside. There's no antennae sticking out. There's no weapons visible on the outside. They're smooth. And Tilcom explained that they were extruded in one piece from multidimensional space and then voluntarily uh, um, and a sentient being uh, was given the opportunity to be the consciousness and reside as the ship. And I said, what's that like? And he said, well, some of the deep ocean aquatics have always been curious about things and rather than uh, just spend their time in the ocean, some of them prefer to do their exploration by entering into this partially biological craft mm -hmm. to essentially be the brains of the craft or the personality of the craft. And he said, our fleet is much more akin to what you would see in a herd of horses Every craft has a personality. They're all different. They all have their likes, their dislikes. We have to maintain them health-wise like you would an animal as much as a mechanical device. That's and fascinating. So if you see a craft that's completely smooth, um, if they're not traveling, if they're just parked, they can be completely silver or completely bright, shiny white, like you would see a new car paint job, shiny white. No windows, no doors evident on the outside as it's just sitting there. Can those openings be created by the craft itself on command? Yes. And so if you walk up to a craft and it doesn't look like it has a door and you ask it to please open the door, a door opens, but you don't see the wow. seams, 
where it's going to open ahead of time. And so I don't know how that works, but when the craft travels, oftentimes you will see it as a bright white light or a bright amber light. And we have photographs of both in front of the Sandia Mountain. Um, on On this Western side of the Sandia, and that's where I live is on the west side. Uh, there is a single entrance up one of the canyons that a small skipper ship, that's these um, oval craft, they're about the size of a small plane. They uh, can hold on average about six crew members, but the skipper ships can get into the entrance on the west side. The huge hangar bay doors that can open are on the east side of the mountain. Wow, that's incredible information. Um, we've heard so many people talk about these craft that are organic and they're conscious, you know, they're piloted by the consciousness of the individual. And some of some of them are specific to the individual, meaning no one else can pilot that craft. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. It's it's very fascinating. We've I've heard I forgot who at this point, and people hate when I do this when I tell things that I don't remember who said it, but. Um, I believe it was an on, on an old episode of Cosmic Disclosure. They, it was a team of people who we were designed to attend, tend to wrecked UFOs. And they were specifically told not to remove the body from the craft because sometimes the body is and the craft are one. And if you remove the body from the craft, it, the, the, the being would actually die. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beca- mm-hmm. And it, they were like, the, understand that. there's like a protocol that kicks in. If there's a wreck that actually keeps, they keep each other alive. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really fascinating. Interesting. Because- Interesting. We were um, here at the house one day, and I think it was two or three years ago. And suddenly we got an emergency alert from the mountain. And Drudy said, we have a situation You can listen, just don't talk. And she shared with me that they had a craft that had gone down at the Southern Kansas, Oklahoma border. And it had gone down hard from a malfunction of some kind. And apparently there had been an explosion and a fire. And the fellow who takes care of the fleet, they call him instead of the head engine, They call him the fleet master. The fleet master went out and the craft had to be destroyed. And they were able to take five of the six crew members back to the station and heal them there. But the sixth um, was far too injured and had to end up going to a, a, what would be a specialized facility here on our system and then ended up going back home. And he's uh, had to retire from his service because wow. he was not able to continue. He was burned over a huge part of his body. That could be fixed, but the uh, brain chemistry stuff was the problem. So he really, really took it hard. Sorry but, about that phone call. Yep, yep understand. Um, One sec, we sorry. have only had them twice or three times, two or three times, tell us that they've gone into emergency mode and essentially they shut down the mountain. We can't telepathically get in until they open things back up. Every once in a while, if there's an emergency, they'll let us listen like 
Trudy did that first time just so we understand what's going on. But we never know what's going to happen or why they're going to do it. And so it was a sad but fascinating wow. Wow. time frame. Yeah, it's very interesting. The, uh, the no rivets, no seams, everything seamless, the multidimensional yeah. aspect of it. Um, in, in the book, The Ancient Secret of the Flower of Life, that's kind of how they described how a lot of these ancient pyramids were built, almost like in another dimension. And a lot of these ancient structures that we just can't describe, uh, that's they describe something very similar to that. And um, I've actually seen one of those white cylinders before. I, I was sent to Vegas for some training when I was in construction. And on the flight home, uh, the guy next to me, who's, I don't know if he's a believer in any of this stuff or not, he, he said, what's that? And he looked, pointed out the window and there was a, a white cylinder, a white cigar. Oh my goodness. And, and he said, what's, I said, I don't know. And he goes, that's not a plane. And I was like, no, it's not. And it was right at the moment we've seen it. I don't know if this was coincidence or not, but the plane seemed to like uh, go full throttle. Like he was just, uh, it right. just took off and we started raising elevation. And you could like physically feel yourself get sucked back into the seat. It was right when he noticed it, right when we saw it. It was, it was, uh, and then it's, it remained at its elevation and we got higher and faster and, oh. and got away from it. It was interesting um wow that's yeah. crazy yeah it was it was uh something I, I always forget about but when you mentioned the cylinder and stuff and it was white it was specifically white uh and and i've you know i've heard many stories of pilots saying they they've seen ufos but then they're, it's almost like taboo for them to talk about it mm -hmm. a lot of times they're like not mm -hmm. you know it's like don't don't talk about those you know right uh, because you know they're not supposed they could to lose their job exactly yeah. yeah and people in the military it's like the same thing it's like a lot, a lot of them know about all this stuff but they're not allowed to kind of talk about it they're not supposed to uh, unless you're like one-on-one -on -one with them and they'll like some of them will, will tell you right. stuff but, mm -hmm. right um, that's why like this secrecy needs to end you know we need disclosure like we're all you know it's in, it's insane that like all this stuff is happening on our planet and the vast majority of people have no idea <laughs> and don't think it's even real or you know it's yes. like insane right. and yes. all this technology that we actually have it's being kept from us you know that we could use to that's frustrating isn't it this especially now when our son is getting ready to do its um uh, reaction to this area of the galaxy that we're passing through. Our son is uh, uh, displaying some abnormal behaviors because of this turbulent area of the galaxy. And in fact, mm -hmm. they uh, first documented the effect on Barnard star and then uh, Alpha Proxima. And then they started noticing an effect in our system, first on Pluto, then on Neptune, then on Mars, they have started noticing different anomalies with the geomagnetics as well as the geology and the tectonics of Mars. They've been recording more earthquakes stronger than they had previously. Mm -hmm. And we're not real far 
from it affecting this area of the galaxy, affecting dramatically affecting our own planet. Yeah. And I mean, we're already uh, seeing signs of that. Oh, huge signs. Big, big yeah. time. The sun's going crazy right now. And it is. And, and our mm -hmm. magnetosphere is going crazy. But our own geomagnetics and the strength of our magnetosphere is dropping like a stone. Right. And the last time that happened, um, they talk about the North and South Pole on a regular basis on our world flipping. Pole flip. Yeah. And we know that our North South Pole geomagnetically uh, are racing toward one another with a point to meet in the Indian Ocean off the northwest coast of Australia. It happens to be exactly on the opposite side of the planet as the anomaly that began uh, in the Atlantic, which has grown and grown and grown and grown and grown so much mm -hmm. that there are satellites and uh, jets and, and other equipment that when they fly over this anomaly, um, turn off some of their devices because the readings aren't going to be accurate. It's just right. affecting things an awful lot. And right, well, has let us know that our world is very quickly racing toward a time frame that is going to make it very difficult to survive on the surface here. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I just, yeah, we're going into uncharted territory. You know, this is everything <laughs> Sorry, right now. Yes. To, to say the least, yeah. Everything, <laughs> yes. well, well, even, not even energetically, even on the surface, like everything that's happening yes. right now is a first. No one knows how to react. They don't know how to handle these situations. A lot of them, yeah, they're fabricated, but still it's a first. We're, we're learning right now and people, that's what's forcing this awakening. People are being forced to, they're being challenged to discover new ways of living and, and figuring out, you know, how they're going to survive and what they can do. And relationships are falling apart. New relationships are being made. We're seeing this beautiful thing happen, even though it's uh, traumatic in some cases, it's all part of this cycle. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about this treaty. Did you call it the Desert Accord Treaty? The or? Desert Accord Treaty, yes. Um, can you explain um, to people we, what that is and when, sure can. when that bet. started and it mm -hmm. ended now, right? And mm -hmm. yeah, Right. We asked Tilkum about getting their pictures and, and at the time when we first met Tilkum in 2013, he described to us a treaty that was signed in the desert somewhere in the Middle East, he won't tell us where, in August of 1971. It was signed not only by the United States, but by several European and Asian countries. And a number of star nations, both terrestrial and aquatic, attended that desert accord and agreed with the earth humans to give them five decades, 50 years, in order to get their people or us as earth humans ready to meet their star nation neighbors. And so the Desert Accord Treaty, they agreed to not provide technology to the lay people. They agreed not to provide photographs or videotape and they 
were kind of laying low as far as um, doing most of their things so in a way that they could not be seen. That's it wasn't a perfect rule, but most the star nations that had agreed and signed that treaty all uh, were very careful about the interactions that they had with Earth humans. Mm-hmm. The Desert Accord Treaty ended last year at the end of August in 2021. That was the 50-year mark. Oh, wow. And I said, so what does this mean, Tilkom? And he said, well, the first things you're going to see are more evidence of video and photographic captures of craft. Then he said that the Sasquatch, who um, now journey with some of the star nations to explore other worlds, um, agreed that they would come out of the the forest closet, so to speak, to be photographed and evidence provided first. Um, The Ponte and some of the other star nations that look more human will be the next to be photographed with their craft, either waving from a window or standing outside of a craft that's landed on the ground before they get to the point where they're going to walk up to a group of people and say, hi, how are you? Okay. Mm, Right. Um, We're at the stage where the Sasquatch are revealing themselves and at least the Ponte are much less careful day and night about whether or not their ships are seen and or photographed. We have captured audio now of the Ponte, but not close up video. I only have one photograph in a forest that looks like it's Commander Tilcom wearing one of his um, dark black capes. And that's the only long distance picture I've seen provided by somebody else that seems to be accurate. Um, But we have let all of the regular repeat experiencers know uh, that if they wish to set up equipment at their home, that is motion sensing equipment to capture a visitor that they certainly may and, and well, um, you might not get a Ponte walking straight up to the camera. Um, you might. It, it's up to them what they do and how they do it. We find behind the scenes that some of them talk about things that they could do to reveal themselves and hint at their existence. And um, they've talked about everything from um, showing up on night vision equipment or, or full spectrum camera equipment to uh, be just showing up on some of the paranormal shows where you'd think it was a ghost, but it's not. Right. Um, so we've seen them humorously talk about buzzing people along the highways in the interstates because people have dash cams now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, Radar went to Tilcom one day and said, you really expect us to avoid all of these dash cams? They're all over and they're moving all the time. 
how is that practically possible, boss? And Tilton had to acquiesce and said, okay, just don't bu- buzz the local populace and scare them half to death. So we have several videos showing the oval, um, small plane sized craft suddenly zooming by somebody on the highway, wow. either coming in the opposite direction or going in the same direction. And it's not unusual when Otter and I travel from, from the house and go to a conference or go out of state. It's not unusual for us to look up in the sky day or night and see one of them. Mm. Like we have a babysitter. <laughs> nice. You know, it's interesting. You said they might show up on uh, like any motion sensor cameras or, sec- mm-hmm. or foot- security footage. Even um, yesterday, we had an individual reach out to us who had security footage of a gray. Oh, and, good. And um, we, um, she, she was, she, she wasn't um, getting a bad feeling about it. She thought she's, mm-hmm. which was surprised her. And so I, I'll leave her name out of this, but she reached out to us and okay. said, Hey, what do you guys think of this footage? Immediately. I said, that looks like the Ponte. I okay. said, it, I said, it looks, I mean, it looked like it to me. And look good. Yeah. And she didn't know who you were or anything. So mm-hmm. I made her aware of that. And she's like, oh, my God, I think you're right. And then now you're telling us like they're actually showing up on foot on cameras and stuff like that. Um, there's no coincidences. It probably was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's very interesting, though. And it was an incredible footage. And hopefully one day she gets a show. Oh, but I'd it's, love not, to see it. it's not hers um, to actually um, show yet. So, oh, yeah, there uh, are five extraterrestrial nations that visit our world that have the large dark eyes with the retractable uh, lenses. Um, those, that black eye that's huge that you see, that's the second eyelid. When they retract that one, you see their eyes have irises that are colored like our eyes are. Oh, okay? wow. Blue, brown, green, amber, uh, violet even. We've seen uh, purple tones. But those, their eyes are extremely sensitive to our level of light. And Mm. so there are nocturnal people anyway, but they really struggle with our light in the daytime. And so whenever we see them um, at our house, and we have, uh, they typically have the lenses, the dark lenses covering that's a, that's a great i'm glad you said that because i was i was curious on why when you draw them you would draw them either with the irises mm-hmm. their eyes or black eyes and now that explains it yeah um and i let them choose which way they want to be portrayed because if they want to be emotionally understood for us as earth humans it's easier we identify emotions in other people's eyes their eyebrows, their mouth, their cheeks. And so their entire facial expression makes a huge difference for us in understanding them. And we've learned as Earth humans to trust each other by looking each other in the eye. And that's how we, or one of the ways that we discern truth in another person. (laughs) And so when they first started in, and believe it or not, I started drawing the Ponte at Tilcom's request. 
And what he said was, Sue, we still have this Desert Accord Treaty in place. I can't give you a photograph right now. I can't let you take a photograph right now. However, there's absolutely nothing in the treaty that says that a contactee or experiencer cannot draw what they've experienced. I'd like you to get your art supplies and draw me. And I said, Tilcom, I haven't drawn a face in 40 years since I was in high school. I, I'm not up to this. And he said, we'll teach you. And so I started drawing the Ponte and they assigned one of their crew members who is their art and cultural art collector who also is an artist herself. Her name is Mim and she became my art teacher. Hmm. And so the difference between when I first started drawing and now is huge. And yeah, so, your work is beautiful. That's really great stuff. And and we'll I, put I, go ahead. We'll, we'll put some of that on the screen for for the audience and the viewers, um, so they can see it. See the before and after. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, the before even, and now I look at is real scary. <laughs> you, you know what? Though it's not like it, it's it's still the it it still gets the idea across. It depicts you know you're depicting it well. Um. One last thing, you mentioned the Sasquatch, um, and yes. you've, you've even drawn some Sasquatch. Uh, have you had communication with the Sasquatch like you have with the Ponte? I have. And I honestly knew nothing about the Sasquatch until Radar informed us that the Ponte and the Sasquatch nations were good friends culturally as Star Nation people or as um, they, they considered the Sasquatch uh, the terrestrial um, dominant sentient species mm. that had the highest advanced civilization level of any terrestrial animal. And I said, what's an advanced civilization level? And Tilgham said, if you provide for 100% of your population, food, clean water, shelter, medicine, education, and clothing if it's necessary. If you take care of all of your people, you've reached advanced civilization level zero. That's where we start. He said, the Sasquatch are there. They've been there for thousands and thousands of years. They take care of 100% of their population. We don't. As Earth humans, yeah. we're not even close. We could be if we chose to. Right. But... We don't care enough to treat each other with that respect yet. And so culturally, there are other sentient animals on our world, both in the oceans and on land, that are at a higher advanced civilization level than we are. Even if that advanced civilization level doesn't have the technology to say, leave the planet, go up in a rocket and go to the moon and come back. They don't have to have that to be considered worthy of contact and having reached a potential culturally to grow from there. Mm -hmm. So when I learned that, I kind of sat back and went, oh. It, it's true though. It, yeah. I mean, 
it only makes perfect sense too. The the way they're even able to remain hidden tells you that they're more advanced, you know, culturally than us. So the Sasquatch, I guess they would be, have they explained how they remain hidden? They're interdimensional. Are they, are they, are they in a parallel existence? Can you explain that? Yes. Um, and we have some evidence of that now. So what the Ponte informed us is that the Sasquatch, their regular everyday niche, environmental niche that they reside in is considered multidimensional. And they can step from their world dimensionally across a veil or a barrier into our world and back just like you and I could step from a forest and walk onto a beach. Two totally different environments that have totally different animals that live in those environments. But you and I can walk and and cross many different kinds of uh, environmental niches with no problem. Not all animals can do that. The Sasquatch, their environmental niche straddles two dimensions. And so they can go from their dimension into ours and back at will with no issues. Mm -hmm. Do we know a little bit about their hair structure having a different shaft in the middle of the hair than ours do? And some people think that that may be part and parcel of this. I think it may be, but I don't have all the details to that. What we do know is, and this comes from research from a Sasquatch researcher up in Ontario by the name of Mike Patterson. Oh, we had him on our show. We just had him on the show. Okay, so (laughs) you know that Mike gave the Sasquatch a camera and Mm -hmm. said, this is how you use it. And they went and took pictures of stepping across and coming back and gave those pictures to Mike. And if it's the middle of winter for Mike and it's 20 below and it's snow on the ground and there's no leaves on the trees and it's two o'clock in the morning, they can take pictures and come back five minutes later. It's light out. There's leaves on the trees. It's sunny and it's a different season. And Mm -hmm. I sat back when I saw those pictures and went, okay, how does. Yeah. So it's curious, but clearly we have some evidence to the fact that one, they can do that step across or step between. Mm-hmm. And you know how many researchers have we talked to that see one footprint in the middle of nowhere, nothing leading yeah. up to it, nothing leading away from it, mm-hmm. plop. And Sponti told us that the Sasquatch do that to mess with the researchers. They do it on purpose. <laughs> nice. They sit back at the edge of the forest and watch them walk up to this footprint and stare at it and make cast of it and talk about it. And then laugh and their full heads off. So, nice. That, I mean, I've heard multiple people talk about seeing <clears throat> portals where they'll see a Sasquatch come in and out of like a, of a portal in the middle of a forest. Just. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right there. Yeah. We got a chance to to attend the psychic and spiritual Sasquatch conference um, that was held up in Chuela, Washington. 
in 16, 17, 18, and 19. And then COVID hit. But it was the only conference that won a good 95% plus of the attendees had a Sasquatch experience on the land while they were there for that weekend. And two, um, the researchers that came from all over the world just opened up to each other around campfires in chairs, sitting around tents and talked about the weird stuff that goes on in their research that they can't normally talk about at other Sasquatch conferences because they'll get poo-pooed and dismissed. Right. And so we heard these firsthand stories from Australia, from Russia. Russia's premier Sasquatch researcher came over. We met him um, from uh, Europe, France, Belgium, uh, Denmark, England. And so internationally, we got a chance to talk with all these folks and their stories overlapped. And so it wasn't just say happening in North America. It was happening in other Sasquatch clans in other locations as well. And the researchers were going, oh, thinking that they were unique until they came to this conference and opened up to each other. Hearing those firsthand stories overlap was mm. extremely valuable. And right. now people are becoming more open to telling the weird stories. And that's, that's thank goodness. It makes thank you, goodness. it really makes you wonder how many, okay, like what's the population of the Sasquatch? Like they probably, is that, is that dimension just overlaid on the entire planet and they just, they're the entire earth is populated with Sasquatch in another dimension. And then how many other species or elementals is this true with also? Yes. And, um, and yes, uh, we know that the Sasquatch presence in our dimension appears to be increasing. I don't know if that means that the population is increasing or they're just coming over and showing themselves more or we're catching them more because we all carry cameras around with us, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, could be all of the above, but I think it's fair to say that the po population of the Sasquatch that we observe here is increasing. Right. And so do we hear and see other Woodbin, uh, Woodbin, W-O-O-D-B-E-N. Woodbin is other forest folk that live beside the Sasquatch who um, could be what appear to be short Sasquatch, little guys, two feet tall on, but also other forest sentient beings that have been observed by the researchers and caught on camera, but fleeting. And so when you just catch one being on camera, you don't know whether to trust it or not, or whether or not you've got a unique thing at a unique location versus mm -hmm. Uh, if you have other people or other researchers saying, I've seen those guys. I didn't catch them on camera, but I saw them. And that validation of each other's observations in the field is starting to come out now. And so we are beginning to understand Sasquatch uh, glyph language um, 
using sticks on the ground mm-hmm. that can translate to a name, a word, a concept. We are seeing Sasquatch art in stone, in the trees, in their structures that they build. And we are understanding that they don't only build homes for themselves, but they also seem to have built homes for the other wood and the little guys. Because mm. we're seeing at the higher alpine elevations where you really don't have very many trees anymore, that they're moving the rocks and the boulders in order to create a place for very short people to reside. Wow. Yeah, I mean, nice. we're gonna, that's, that's amazing to me. We're going to start seeing all kinds of interesting stuff as we move forward. And uh, it reminds me, you know, if there's, if there's that many of them and they, they exist in another dimension, on an old episode of Finding Bigfoot, they go to the town hall meeting and they have the people share their experiences. And this one guy got up there and said that he saw a hundred Sasquatch at one time. They were just he like a, a phased into this area of the woods and they all looked at him like, yeah, okay, next. You know, they all wrote him off like this guy's a lunatic. And right. I th- even at the time, I was like, that seems pretty out there. But now knowing what we know, I mean, who knows what he saw? Like, probably did. Well, and and that's not out of the realm of possibility. If you think about the Native American tribes that reside in North America, say, do they reside on their own, by their lonesome, in their villages, but occasionally do they need to come together as a group to accomplish something larger, to meet, to make a decision? to meet, to help one another through a crisis. Um, Mm -hmm. We do know that the Sasquatch um, get together and at competitions. And I, when, when Raider told me about competitions, I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, they have what they call a stomp and growl. And I said, a what? A stomp and growl. And he said, basically it's, the Olympic games, so to speak, of Sasquatch nations, who can throw the heaviest log the farthest, who can pick up the biggest boulder, who can do the loudest roar. And- It's a strongman competition, yeah. Yes, yes. (laughs) Now you're understanding. So they get together more than one village or more than one clan, more than one tribe, and- Uh, have games with one another and then go their separate ways. We also learned that they, as teenagers, um, have their males travel to another clan and live with them for a season up to a year and come back to one, have the genetics not just be in a local populated area because teenage boys do what teenage boys do when there's females around and two, they get to learn what another environment has challenges of. So if you're used to living in uh, the Alpines above 9,000 feet in the Colorado Rockies, and you go to the swamps of Louisiana, they're gonna live very differently. And whoever travels there has to learn all of a new system, new food source, what a new, what what does this clan do in their environment? 
And so they trade back and forth that way. Wow. Wow. This is all very fascinating information. Thank you for coming and sharing all this. I mean, happy to. It's amazing what you've learned. And, you know, it seems, yeah, (laughs) it it seems like you're playing a very important role. So thank you for that. And uh, we, we learned early on that this is a golden opportunity to learn about another people and that we kind of figured we probably weren't the apex person in the galaxy. That probably wasn't the case, but we didn't know who was or what they did or how they lived. And so we just started treating Tilcom and the other Ponte like they were our neighbors. That and right there is the key. That was it. That's why, that's why the, con- the communication has continued. Uh, yes. Because like you said earlier, you were more interested in getting to know them as a people than you were in their technology and what they were capable of and what they can offer. Um, they sense that within people and that's why they appear to certain people and others they don't. Same with the Sasquatch. You know, yes. if they if they want to show themselves, they'll show themselves. You know, they you're will. not you're not gonna go out there, you might get lucky and randomly stumble across one in a peculiar situation, but most of the time um if you're going to see one you're going to see one if you're not you're not you know it depends on your intentions it's up to them usually whether you see yeah because they can sense you a mile away and they sense your intentions like you said they're telepathic you bet you you thinking yeah so right speaking of telepathic we should probably mention what we call the telepathy 101 primer the pontier telepathic nation and they wanted us to be able to communicate with them easily and so they actually asked if I would work with uh, a woman by the name of Tini and translate and transcribe a manual that takes you and I as earth humans from where we are right now, uh, kind of telepathically dead as a doornail, to a better or more improved level. And how do we do that and what to expect as well as what's the protocol when you uh. want to contact someone. And so the Telepathy 101 Primer is published now for free on the official firstcontact.com website. And it's been translated into a dozen languages. Right now, we have an Indonesian man translating so that people in the islands can read and study the Telepathy 101 Primer in their own language. And uh, so... If you want to learn how to contact them and what to do and the proper way to do it, download your free copy of the Telepathy 101 Primer from officialfirstcontact.com and start studying. They recommend you study for 100 days and practice with feedback. And there are groups now, Twitter groups and Facebook groups that you can join for free that meet at various times that you can study with other earth humans and practice and get feedback immediately so that you understand what it feels like to be accurate telepathically. That's the key. And so if you can do that, then you get your brain used to listening to the Ponte, listening to these guys or other telepathic star nations, because believe it or not, it's an intense experience when you're there, just like hearing words in your head. 
its words and images and emotions and history and other connections and other people and the energy of it and on and on and on. And it's a download Mm -hmm. when you have a telepathic conversation. And if your brain isn't used to it, it gets tired out. Oh yeah. So you have to practice one, being able to trust it. That's the first thing, because most of us, if we were going to get a telepathic message, would probably dismiss it. Mm. Oh, I'm hearing voices. I must be crazy. Nope, that was nothing. And we, yeah. we don't respond. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's beautiful. And thank you for putting that together. Yeah. And I've definitely, I think I'm going to do that because I mean, I've gotten the message so many times over the years to start practicing telepathy and, <laughs> and sessions and all the stuff. And I don't, I don't. And I'm just going to take this as like the final sign, like to really there start. Well, I mean, it, it, it won't even, it, like you say, it will help you in all areas and probably even help you with communication with your higher self and stuff. Things that we don't even anticipate. With your family, with your coworkers, with yourself, you learn to trust the first thing you get instead of dismiss it. Right. And that's huge. And that's where we've gone wrong as humanity, as a, as a people. Um, we start the second we ignore the gut feeling and start overthinking it. Um, yes. We get ourselves in these situations, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Thank yep. you so much. Thank you You're so much for coming on. Um, can you please let people know where to find you and then how to contact you if you're offering that? You betcha. Um, if people are looking for clairvoyant and medical intuitive things, my website is suewalker.com. Just remember, I don't write Sue with an E on the end of it. It's just S-U. So suewalker.com. If you would like to see images of some of the things that I've drawn, whether they're Sasquatch, uh, Ponte, or other star nations. I have a YouTube channel that um, goes through a lot of those portraits and the artwork that I've done. And so Sue Walker is the YouTube channel, real easy. If you would like to study the Ponte, officialfirstcontact.com is their website. And that's where the Telepathy 101 Primer can be found along with a great deal of other information about them and documents that have been put out, research that's been done, evidence that's been gathered by people who have been receiving repeat visits from them. And there are people from Canada to Australia to England to Israel to just about every continent now except Antarctica we have people who are getting repeat visits from the Ponte because they've learned how to ask and ask politely. Hmm. And so now they not only know how to ask, but they recognize the people that they're interacting with and sometimes then call them by name immediately. And that's new. I don't think we've ever had that with any other star nation before now. And it was because Tilcom asked me to start drawing them. Wow. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, Guys, all those links will be below in the description. uh, So you can check them out there. Thank you so much for joining us, Sue. This was a pleasure. Thank Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. Um, Any new information comes forward or anything you feel like you want to share, feel free to reach out and we can do this again. I'm sure there's endless things to talk about as we move (laughs) forward. So 
Um, guys, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us, Sue. Uh, until next time, have a great evening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> Good night. Nuggets. Nuggets.